A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Hello and welcome to A Bit Lit. I'm delighted to be joined by the project team for the research project Engendering the Stage. And I wondered if you could start by each telling me a little bit about who you are, what you're doing on the project, and how your research interests have led you to this project. And I'm going to just call on people as they appear on my screen. So Oliver, would you mind starting us off? Sure. Um, so I am a second year PhD student at the University of Brampton. And my research specialises in the idea of porous masculinity. So I'm interested in the ways in which uh, masculinity is not this kind of homogenous blob, but instead kind of these disparate things that either collectivise into wider concepts or kind of how they might be considered a local thing that uh, is something that might tour around the nation or around the continent. Oh, that's fascinating. So the idea of masculinity is sort of place-based in the one hand, but also and, portable or travelling. And permanently shifting in the process. Brilliant. Thank you, Oliver. And Erin, would you be happy to go next? Hi, uh, I'm Erin Julian, and I'm the postdoctoral fellow on Engendering the Stage. And my research in the past has focused on um, gendered violence and sexual violence and uh, women in early modern drama and has more recently been moving towards um, just gendered performance, uh, embodied gendered performance on the stage. So this is sort of right up my alley in, in terms of the kinds of things that I'm interested in looking at. Fantastic. So the kinds of questions that engendering the stage is asking are the questions you were already asking of kind of what it means to embody gender on the stage. Yeah, and I'm now thinking about the ways that certain bodies are left out of archives, which are questions that are at the heart of engendering the stage. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing more about that in a moment. Um, Claire, would you be happy to go next? Yeah, hi, I'm Claire McManus. Um, I'm a professor in early modern literature and theatre at the University of Roehampton. And um, I've been working for a while now on uh, women's performance, early modern women's performance, and thinking about the gendering of performance and doing quite a bit of textual editing as well. And that kind of all comes together in, in this big archival project, um, Engendering the Stage, in which we're going to try and find out if, if the evidence around which early modern theatre history is based is as we thought it was, or if there is evidence of different and diverse kinds of people performing. That's fascinating. Thank you. So you're sort of you're questioning that when you say around which early modern theatre history is based, I'm imagining is part of what you're thinking of, that idea that it was an all-male stage, only male bodies on the stage. Yeah, exactly. And 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 broadening that out as well. So thinking about a lot of different kinds of performance and different performance venues, different kinds of stages, <clears throat> excuse me, and um different ways of participating in performance culture. So um women and gender non-conforming performers as artists, as practitioners, but also as um, theatre builders, investors, costume makers, really any connection with the theatre industry, if you like, so that we can rethink that broadly and show where women and gender non-conforming performers um, and participants really made their mark. Brilliant. So sort of taking that kind of relatively narrow idea of theatre being what's going on on that kind of that one part of the playhouse, but it's kind of demarcated from the rest and kind of expanding the kind of definitions and way we think of that. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Mel, would you like to go next? Um, I'm Mel Harrison and I'm the, a second year PhD student at King's College London. Um, and I'm 
particularly interested in how gender and disability are constructed and how they are performed and how they intersect um, on the early modern stage. And as Claire said, of kind of a wide range of stages as well. Um, and I'm particularly looking at the 16th century context um, as that's sort of relatively under-researched at the moment. Fantastic. So you're similarly kind of pushing at ex both challenging our ideas of what's happening on the stage, but also expanding the kind of space in which we're, we're thinking about. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And kind of crossing those class boundaries as well as sort of geographical boundaries. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and Lucy, would you be happy to go next? Yeah, so I'm the other half of the King's part of the team. Um, I'm a professor of Shakespeare and Anyone Literature at King's College London. And I'm really coming at this project through a kind of theatre history and, and repertories and companies kind of angle. Um, so I've written studies of um, a company called the Children of the Queen's Revels, which involved thinking about age, gender, sexuality as things that are entwined in the, the plays and the performances of, of the, the all-boy troops of the early modern period. And I've carried on thinking about that sort of childhood in the early modern period alongside lots of other things. Um, and then I've also been writing recently about the King's Men um, and thinking about the way that Shakespeare's plays feature in the repertory, but also the King's Men as kind of theatre makers themselves. And so that's involved thinking about the, the range of actors who appeared in the plays. Um, and also my work on companies is involved thinking about playhouses. Um, and I've been working recently on, on playhouse investment. Um, so I'm sort of coming at this project from a number of angles. And the final one, I guess, is that um, I was a, a co-investigator on Before Shakespeare, along with Andy Kesson and, and Callan Davies of this parish. Um, and that was a, a project that was trying to um, think, reconsider the theatre of the period between the 16, sorry, 1560s and 1590s um, and to to really shed new light on a, on a neglected period of theatre history um, and of, of performance culture as well. Wonderful. So it sounds like but by your kind of very specific playhouse and company focus, in a way you're using repertory studies to give us and kind of challenge the narratives of the all-male stage in a slightly different way by looking at kind of adult bodies versus children's bodies and looking at the way that a kind of company identity might have shaped ideas of gender. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the things that, that we're thinking about in the project is, is the, you know, what we can trace of the the lives and careers of, of individual boy actors um, and the ways in which their performances were, were gendered. And, and we're, we're interacting with kind of current research that's coming out of, of queer and trans studies in that respect as well. Fantastic. And I'll hope to hear more about that in a moment as well. Um, but so I'm keen to ask more questions that will maybe give us a kind of glimpse inside your research project and the kind of findings you've been coming across. But I'm aware that there are a couple of project team members who aren't joining us today. And I wondered if you wanted to say any more about them before we, we move on to kind of introduce them into the conversation. Yeah, that, that would be great. Um... Because our archival project is part of um, a much bigger international project with two um, fantastic collaborators at McMaster University in Canada. And they are Melinda Goff, who is an expert in early modern gender and uh, performance. And she also specialises in French women's performance, which is incredibly exciting. And Professor Peter Cockett, who is um, a practices research expert and 
uh, Melinda and Peter ran a wonderful uh, theatre lab at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival three years ago now in the before times. Um, and they gathered this remarkable group of um, company actors and guest artists, trans and non-binary and indigenous and cis um, group all together. And, and we worked as collaborators and it was a really exciting opportunity to work um, for scholars to work with actors and as collaborators, as equal partners. Um, and we learned a huge amount about our project and about the way that our project should develop from that experience. So, yeah, their work is absolutely key to the to the bigger iteration of the project. And that's really exciting because I feel like I've heard people before, well, lots of people before talk about doing archival research, getting their findings and then doing some practices research to kind of find a way of, I don't know, making those findings public facing, which is great and very exciting. But you've sort of done it the other way around where you use the practices research to, to create the questions or to kind of shape the project even before you get to the archives and I love that I haven't I haven't come across that before I don't think yeah our project I mean the, the broader in gender in the stage project has always been about archives and practices research um and and by a weird sort of accident most of the funding that we've had in Canada so far has been on the PAR side and most of the funding that we've had in the UK so far has been on on the archival side although we did get some funding from Hampton and King's to run a workshop at the Globe um two years ago again in the before times um so yeah we're really interested in the way in which practices research can actually help to to generate questions to to orientate a project um, and not just to be a kind of a, a, an element that, that gives you impact kind of after you've done the other the other kinds of work. Absolutely wonderful and so I feel like actually from everything you've been saying I've got quite a clear idea of what your sort of project interests and sort of parameters are but I wondered does anyone want to, to have an attempt to sort of pithily sum up kind of what the project's main question is or what the, the main topic of the project is? I'll give it a go. Oh, great, <laughs> well, thanks, um, To my mind, it is reinvestigating the evidence base for early modern theatre, really broadly, inclusively defined, and making space, using our findings to make space for um, an inclusive theatre history that involves female identified and gender non-conforming performers and performers of colour. Um, and then taking that on and thinking about what difference that might make to today's Shakespeare industry surrounded by scare quotes. <laughs> Fantastic. That's so interesting. So it's it's finding yeah a way to, to tell a different story about theatre history from the evidence that it sounds like has been missed or overlooked or not fully um, investigated before. And yeah, I can completely see how that because the, the, yeah, the Shakespearean industry as it stands is so invested in a particular narrative, I guess the kind of narrative we see in Shakespearean love of what playmaking looked like to kind of, yeah, challenge that is tremendously exciting. Brilliant. Does anyone want to, I mean, that sounded pithy and beautiful to me, but would anyone like to add anything to that that they feel wasn't covered? I'm really happy with that. Well done. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, then maybe it's a nice moment to move from the, the big, beautiful overview into kind of glimpses of what you've been finding so far in the archives and what you've discovered. So maybe I'll just call on people as they appear on my screen again to yeah, get a bit more of a picture or an insight into that. So, Oliver, would you be happy to go first again? Sure. 
Um, so I, th I think it will be mentioned by everyone else in the team at some point, but the, the, the strange time of this project that we find ourselves in is that archives have been very much an, kind of an illusionary figure of kind of some people have had some access and some, you know, for a, a fair portion archives have been completely closed. Um, so myself and Mel have predominantly worked on uh, read volumes um, to look at kind of already established archival material and kind of tease out what gendered um, ideas perform early modern performance are negotiating and, you know, representing that may have not been fully appreciated um, over, over the decades and centuries. Um, so one kind of record I'm particularly interested in is in, in Cambridge with um, a Dr. Henry Butts, who is the vice chancellor of Cambridge at the time in 1632. Um, and he commissions this play called uh, The Rival Friends, which is quite unwieldy. It's got 32 over 32 characters. It's quite bizarre. There's about five or so plot lines, strands going on all, all at the same time. It's very confused. Um, and it was performed in front of the King Queen um, and Charles was noted to say that it was incredibly tedious, that he found it boring. And the direct quote of, let me find it, that it was a long, dull, unseasoned piece of stuff. Oh, no. Is, is I find, find it hysterical. Um, but 13 days, 13 or so days after the performance, uh, the vice chancellor was found hanged. And a number of um, accounts from the time kind of connected that performance to his suicide. Um, and I'm quite interested, not so much in kind of entering the mindset of Dr. Butts, but kind of recognising that failed performance equals failed masculinity somehow, or kind of successful performance equals successful masculinity. Um, there's kind of rumours that he believed that a successful performance might have led him to become elevated to be a bishop. And I find that quite interesting that this disaster, clear disaster of a performance is something that people believed at the time was kind of connected with with suicide and melancholy and what that might mean in terms of reputation and the role of gossip in forming and deconstructing questions of manhood and concepts of manhood wow there's so much there that's fascinating so it's a very strange play i would recommend and also not recommend reading it at the same time okay it's an experience <laughs> they find it dull and <laughs> yeah yeah but that's fascinating in terms of the as you say that the way that a particular it's a sort of performance of masculinity but not by the performers but by the, mm. the patron or the commissioner or the, yeah. the person who almost seeing the players as an extension of themselves in relation to and status and power and how that power and performance actually is kind of leaked both in the playhouse in terms of what people's reception of it was and also how it escaped the playhouse because presumably if it was a successful performance you would want the whole world to know how great it, great it was and how you were kind of at the helm of commissioning this brilliant play but the fact it was a poor performance that's something you'd want to keep contained but ironically of course that's impossible to do because people leave the performing space and people talk and you know it's it's kind of this bizarre um, one-way relationship of how you want almost patriarchy in work to put this performance system um, and I'm quite interested in that relationship. Wow so the porousness of the theatre and theatre as an endeavour 
is something that people are attempting to use for their own benefits, but is yeah. also the thing that's most threatening because yeah. if it goes wrong, then there's the, that lack of control. Brilliant. Gosh, what, what an exciting example to begin with. Thanks, Oliver. Erin, um, would you be happy to go next? Sure. So I've been doing, um, so the work that I have been doing in archives, I'm one of the lucky few who has been able to get into archives. Sorry, this is my cat, Lucy. Hello. Um, <laughs> and I've been going through some of the um, court documents where uh, we know in there are records of performance and going to sort of the early edges of those series to try to see if there's anything in um, the periods that are not often associated with the public stage and so tend to get a little bit neglected. Um, but the thing that I'm really excited to be doing is next week I'll be going to the Kent archives for the very first time and starting to explore the records around uh, Lady Rachel Fane, um, who has been written about a little bit, um, but I'm very interested in what's happening in spaces where we know there was performance. Um, but because uh, that performance is happening in strange times, so Rachel Fane and her, her eventual husband are, and their whole family are royalists. So when the Civil War happens, they're sort of um, having a contentious relationship with the Parliament. Um, but we also know that in both her childhood house and possibly in um, the house that she shared with her husband, the Earl of Bath, there were performances going on. She basically grew up in surrounded by um, a performance culture. Her parents had a library with Beaumont and Fletcher's works um, and Johnson's and the Johnson folio. Um, they were receiving the royal visitors. Um, the king visited the house. And we know that at the age of 14, she penned um, probably her most famous work, which is the May Mask, which when you read it is shockingly well put together. Like, like it does not read like it is something that a 14 year old would write. And it very clearly indicates to me and to a lot of people who have worked with her that um, she, she was clearly in this environment. So I'm, this is leading me to ask questions about the role that women are playing when they perhaps are not doing involved in public performance, but are clearly part of a, a performance culture that's a little more hidden away in domestic spaces. That's fascinating, thank you. And also a beautiful double act performance from, from you and your cat. No, it was it was wonderful. It's it's a great example of, of working with animals and the joys and perils in the yeah talking about being around the edges of the public stage and I suppose that's another distortion of the narrative around performance that we've tended to focus so exclusively on this particular performance context and it was fascinating to hear a bit about those the performance tradition in which Fane's working the political context in which she's working because I've, I've seen the the main mask and it, as you say it's an astonishingly accomplished text but I'd only ever looked at it as a sort of ah this is an interesting sort of survival of a particular performance in a particular household, domestic, familial context, rather than, the, and you know, the fact that it includes direct address to members of her family and the audience and thinking about it in those terms. But it sounds like you were able to situate it as part of, you know, a much larger conversation and tradition, kind of performance tradition. 
Well, I, I'm, I'm slightly hoping to, and, and some of this is, I mean, we would have liked to have been at Kent much earlier, but um, because of pandemic closures, we just haven't been able to get there. Um, but I'm sorry, so I'm sort of hypothesizing here, but um, one of the things I'm keen to have a look at is the correspondence uh, between both um, Rachel and her correspondence and also her husband, um, because as the Civil War starts unfolding and they go up to, um, I believe to Devon and they're sort of living a, a bit of a reclusive life in Devon. And he's receiving a lot of letters it looks like concerning political affairs, asking him to come back to parliament. But amongst his correspondence, um, his friends are also writing to Rachel. So there's some, there appear to be some, uh, letters to her and um, similarly letters from shared correspondence in her set of correspondence. So I'm sort of keen to see if how involved she is in the political narrative that's going on and the role that sort of these private private entertainments, private hosting, um, that that is playing in establishing a kind of political community, which is something that I think we don't give women a ton of credit for doing. Totally. And that's so interesting as well, because it suggests, and I'm sure we'll get more of a picture of this, the wide range of different kinds of sources this project is working with, you know, from records of early English drama to looking at letters and these kind of other kinds of contexts you might not automatically put a kind of situate in relation to the theatrical. Brilliant. Thank you, Erin. And Claire, would you be happy to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody here knows that I'm obsessed with rope dancing and obsessed with um, a company, a rope dancing and tumbling company called the Pedals. And they're oh, the Pedals. Pedals. P E A D L E S. The Pedals. Um, and a woman called Cicely Pedal, who is a sh for a short time the the leader of the company in the 1630s and um a couple of other people have um have looked really briefly at Cicely Peedal, Mark Eccles, Philip Butterworth and as a great um PhD dissertation by a Canadian scholar called Sarah Muller um and I wanted to go much further into this so I've been looking an awful lot at, at rope dancing and what it means to for women to perform rope dancing, what they might wear, the different kinds of acts they might perform, and thinking really hard about the explosive and really muscular dynamic form of femininity that we see performed on the ropes, um, in contrast to what we might expect to see um, in female or female-identified roles in canonical drama. Um, so I started looking into Cicely Peedle, and this troupe is... It's really amazing, actually. They um, they play at court for James VI and first and for Anna of Denmark. The scholar king likes his rope dancing. Um, and they tour basically up to Coventry and then all the way down through southern and southwest England. But they, are, they seem to be a transnational company. They seem to also have a base in the Netherlands. And they play throughout Germany. They're found at court, at court in Brandenburg, um, where we get a little description of what they do. So they're a transnational mobile company um, with a temporary female troop leader who may herself be a rope dancer performing this kind of mobile, flexible, powerful, springy, uh, bendy femininity up on the ropes. Um, so I started to think about what difference that then makes to the plays that we know about. Um, 
because as much as we're we're definitely looking around the edges for for evidence i think we're also pretty keen to take it in and see what difference that evidence makes to the center to the canon um and i started to think about all of those skulls and corpses and monuments and statues and all the ways in which women are reified and objectified particularly in that you know that really lush decade the first decade of the king's men kind of hamlet to the duchess of malfi where every woman <laughs> becomes one of these objects and and that kind of thinking about rope dancing and thinking about those plays made me wonder whether whether the the king's men maybe in particular are generating a version of performed femininity that's in opposition to what you can see everywhere else and inside the playhouses because we do have evidence of women tumblers and women acrobats and rope dancers inside the playhouses so i kind of began to wonder whether the king's men aren't doing something a little niche a little sort of well you go there to see to see women upside down and swinging around ropes and tumbling and sword dancing but come here and see our version of, of heroic, tragic femininity as everybody sort of becomes incredibly still and static. So it's been, it's been really interesting to think kind of inside and outside in that way. It's been really good fun. That is absolutely blowing my mind, Claire, just because <laughs> that's, you know, the idea of, as you say, like Hermione, Gloriana's skull in the Revengers tragedy, all the, the pretend deaths or maybe deaths or hero or in, in Much Ado, just... Just this, you're right, this obsession with this kind of extremely static femininity. And then also I've got in my head the the original practices Twelfth Night at the Globe with Mark yeah. Rylance in the massive skirts doing that amazingly smooth tread across the stage and the way those skirts kind of confine and limit and create a particular kind of movement. And mm. the, just the adjectives you were using, the bendy, springy, dynamic, kind of strong, the, the way that changes the picture. And if one isn't the norm as we thought it was if one is niche you know if the, the static is niche then that just completely changes how we think about the construction it, of femininity in that period yeah but so the static is a choice it isn't inevitable it isn't the only way to be um a standing or sitting woman in 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 the period um and there's all kinds of really fun stuff about what what women wear when they're rope dancing and they they tend to wear when they're Walking the tightrope, which is what we would think of as tightrope walking, um, so you know, really taut rope high in the sky. Then, then they're wearing dresses, um, which brings oh. up all kinds of questions about the spectatorly gaze and where you're meant to look and all this kind of stuff. But when they're doing the really acrobatic stuff on the slack rope and swinging around it, they cross dress. Oh, that's so, amazing! And yeah. it is explicitly cross dressing rather than wearing a you know it, it's it's shaped in relation to they are dressing as men to do that that's a really good question so the, yeah so the question really is is this is this your sports gear right or yeah it, or is this or is this cross-dress i'm actually not sure but that but the the effect in the um in the record which is all of illustrations is it's actually really tough to distinguish between male and female performers mm. um usually you get a little description at the bottom which will help you out um, right. But it's kind of, yeah, we don't know if these are men or women, but for different reasons than we, you know, than we've thought of before. Yeah. And in a period where there's such an obsession with kind of outward signs of clothing for distinguishing mm -hmm. gender and status and wealth and all those things that, yeah, class, to have that be indistinguishable as in itself. Yeah. Fascinating and quite yeah. radical. 
Brilliant. I mean, sorry, I want to now ask questions about the the rope, the, the tumbling and rope dancing that might happen in the theatre and about what it meant to have a female troop leader and how that refigured things. But I'm aware that this could become a tumbling and rope dancing chat. So I'll I'll try and pause it for now. Maybe that's something you'll unpack in, in later videos. But yeah, thank you so much there. That's fascinating. Um, and Mel, would you be happy to go next? Absolutely. Um, my sort of little interesting case study actually follows on really nicely from Claire's so I'm afraid we are we are going to be talking a bit more about tumbling <laughs> um, so I'm looking there's a particular incident in Cambridge um, the university court records for sort of uh, the early 17th century detail um, an attempted performance um, event organized by um, a group of people one of whom is called uh, Judah Hudson and she's also known um, by another name, which has just been causing huge amounts of uh, enjoyment in the team. Uh, her other name is Jumping Judy, which, um, you know, kind of ties really nicely into Claire's ideas about this kind of alternate strong femininity and um, this athleticism that women are able to uh, show. So... Um, she's censured in the court records for part as part of this group for trying to hold um, an event with sounds a bit like a modern day kind of circus and fair where there's lots of performers um, of various kind of um, athletic feats um, and also kind of games and um, things to kind of get involved in yourself. So sort of like an early modern coconut shy and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so uh, but Jumping Judy, which is just a brilliant name, um, sort of sums up this sort of dangerous um, or kind of disreputable femininity because she's also um, uh, called a suspected bored and whore. So there we have got links to possible sex work and prostitution there, but also kind of questions about um, how much women are allowed to participate and perform in public life because accusations of, as many many of you will know, accusations of being a whore in that period kind of get thrown around pretty liberally and actually doesn't, doesn't often doesn't involve actual any sexual activity at all. The kind of accusation of um, being a board is a bit more serious and that might well lead to kind of networks of um, kind of prostitution and stuff because there's an element of procurement there. Um, and that kind of organisational um, level is, is something I'm really interested in as well, because she's working with these people to potentially put on this event. Um, and so there's an element of like kind of the organisational network she can call on to populate, for performers to populate this event. So whether there's that's networks of kind of sex workers or whether that's networks of performers and when kind of how much they might overlap and um, also, I mean, there's so much in this record, um, also questions of sort of hyperability and your kind of excitingly non-normative body and how you might monetize that, how other people might monetize that um, and how that might be kind of performed and interpreted. Um, yeah, so Jumping so, Judy in Cambridge in yeah. the early 17th century is a fascinating figure. I'm 
keen to read more about. And that was drawn from the records of early early English drama, same as Oliver's. So oh, fantastic. Um, it sounds like they've been a real resource in a time absolutely. when other archives on, I mean, they'd be a real resource anyway, but particularly at the moment. Um, and yeah, Jumping Judy sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and I think that's so interesting what you were saying about, yeah, whore being a, a slur that's kind of thrown around liberally. But it's interesting because I feel like I often come across it in relation to speech, a woman being too mm. free in her in her words creates that kind of accusation. While you're talking about her kind of her transgressive freedoms and non-normative freedoms, I suppose, of her body. Um, and then yeah. simultaneously this idea that her very event management skills could be read <laughs> in terms of boredry, this idea that as a as a woman with networks, as a woman who organizes it, whether or not this did actually map on to, to sex work networks, but there's the fact that it's being read in those terms, which is really interesting in terms of the potential obstacles and that she, she would have kind of had to negotiate. And I also found it really interesting what you said about the, the coconut shy and the, <laughs> the fact that this is a, a world where maybe audience performer distinctions aren't completely clear cut because there's a kind of potential participation in this world of non-normative bodies for the, the person attending maybe. Absolutely. It's um, they were planning to hold the event at a place just outside Cambridge called the Gog Magog Hills, um, which they're still there. They're now a lovely country park. Um, go, go for a walk. Um, but one of some of the earlier records that we've discovered for them in um, this area and linking to performance is records from the university banning students from attending various uh, performances, games um, and kind of shows and displays at this area. So there's there's a kind of question of how much of an established history this area has as a place of sort of subversive performance um, mm. and kind of performances not sanctioned by the university. Um, That's really so, interesting. Yeah, so potentially, kind of, yeah, potentially kind of corrupting influence. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. And of being a, a kind of a, a space with a tradition or an expectation of this and the kind of yeah, dangers of association with crossing into it. Uh, I mean, this, this sounds like a wonderful attempted performance anyway. It sounds like <laughs> the kind of event that I wish we could, you know, post-pandemic times all, all attend together. But brilliant. Thank you so much, Mel. And Lucy, sure. thank you. would you like to share your next anecdote now? So I'm going to take us back to the Playhouse, um, but via a couple of strands in the Engendering the Stage research. So one of the plays that we worked on in Stratford three years ago um, was The Roaring Girl. Um, which we worked on with a group of Stratford actors, guest artists, um, including Emma Franklin, um, who is this amazing trans artist who, um, you know, does work with experimental theatre and with, with classical theatre. Um, and The Roaring Girl was first performed at the Fortune Playhouse, and it's sort of in some ways offering a, a riposte to that tradition that Claire was talking about of the, the kind of static woman. And The Fortune is also a playhouse that we know um, hosted rope dancing um, and, and tumbling and kind of activities of those sorts, right the way at least from the 1620s through to the, the, the 1640s. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing is, is pushing a bit more at the histories of The Fortune Playhouse and specifically the second Fortune. So The Fortune burnt down in 1621 and was reconstructed over the following, just over a year or so. And... Edward Alain, who had built the first fortune in partnership with Fred Henslow, constructed the second fortune 
and set up a, a sharing system where basically investors um, bought into the scheme and, and got a, a share in the profits as a result. And the group of initial investors in 1622 and 1623, 1624 sort of time include a number of people with theatre connections and then a number of people who seem to be sort of non-practitioner investors. Um, and some of these people from both sides are women. So one of them is, is Frances GB, who is Edward GB's widow. Um, Edward GB was a long-standing member of the, the Admirals and the Princes and the Paul Graves men who used the, the Fortune Playhouse. Um, a woman called Margaret Mary Bryan and a woman called Margaret Gray. Um, and we also know that later in the life of the Fortune, a woman called Susan Baskerville, um, who's also involved in shareholding of the Red Bull, had a financial stake in the fortune as well. Um, and so scholars like, like Susan Sarazano, Natasha Corder, have done some really amazing work on, on thinking about these women. And what I've been doing is, is working in the National Archives and at the archives at Dulwich and basically piecing together bits of evidence from, from lawsuits and, and from the, the records at Dulwich, um, which are Edward Allain's archive effectively, or, or the archive of, of Edward Allen and his, his kinsman who inherited um, his, both his playhouse and his charity. Um, and in his will, Allen said that the, the playhouse should be the property of the college and should help to fund it, and that it could only be used as a playhouse. Um, and so I've been piecing together evidence for the, the ongoing investment in shareholding in the second fortune between the 1620s and the 1640s and have uncovered a load more evidence of women's involvement and investment. Um, there are points in the history of the fortune where the majority of the shares are in, in the hands of women. Um, and some of these are women who have inherited shares, so they're the, the daughters or the widows of shareholders. Others are really clearly making an investment um, of their own for various kinds of reasons. Um, and one of them is Margaret Gray. And one of the things that I'm most fond of that we've found so far is a deposition by Margaret Gray in one of a number of kind of interminable lawsuits over the fortune. Um, and she claims to be, I think about 80 at the time. Um, and we have her, her, you know, her mark um, on this deposition. Her signature, in fact, on this deposition. Um, and she mainly says she can't quite remember what had happened, which is a bit disappointing. Um, but but yeah, it's part of, you know, we I think tend to think of her as slightly aberrant in terms of the, the history of the Fortune Playhouse, but actually women's investment in that playhouse seems to be completely normal. It's amazing. That's an amazing story. Because I think, yeah, again, my mind is blown in terms of my previous assumptions, because I think I, you know, mainly I always think about Shakespeare and the King's Men when I'm thinking about companies and shareholders and what owning a theatre would look like. And I guess if I'd ever even thought about it properly, I might have assumed that maybe a bit like how a, the, the widow of a printer might have then taken over the printer company, that maybe, as, as you say, there might be those kinds of examples. But the, the fact that there was sometimes at some points a majority, the majority of the shareholders were women, that does just completely change the picture, right? That's that's a different kind of power structure and dynamic and and yeah, just a different picture of who is 
making the theatre who is yeah behind it yeah and there's been a tendency I think for for theatre students to be a bit a bit kind of snobby about the um the shareholders who weren't theatre makers um and not really to take them entirely seriously whereas we're really interested in in these people in the way that that Natasha Corder and, and, and Susan Sarazano have been but doing this concentrated work is revealing a bigger a bigger picture there how exciting yeah and wonderful to have a, a deposition that gives you direct access to, to one of their voices as well although what a, what a shame that she doesn't remember That's, she remembers yeah. some things but there's just okay, a lovely moments where she goes well you know this deponent says that she does not perfectly recall <laughs> <laughs> which is fair enough clearly oh Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, everyone. This has been such an exciting snapshot of the, the things you've discovered so far in a kind of range of different archives and places that are clearly going to, to turn the field of early modern theatre history on its head and completely change how we, we think about it all. So, I, yeah, I look forward to hearing about what you what you discover in the time to come. Um, sadly, we're probably going to have to start wrapping it up now. So maybe I'll ask two more questions. And the first will just be for anyone who wants to volunteer what is next for the for the project? Are there any kind of next steps you've got coming up? Well, getting into the archives a bit more. Um, so we've had sort of limited access to the National Archives and the London Metropolitan Archives and the archives at Dulwich. Um, but it, you know, it's starting to kind of loosen up a bit now, but for a long period, it, you were very limited in how many visits you could book, how long you could be there for, how many documents you could actually look at. Um, things like microfilm readers have been off limits at, at, at some archives. Right. So certain kinds of material have been harder to access or inaccessible. So we're, we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed that things will continue to, to improve in that respect. And, and as Erin was saying, she's going to the archives in Kent next week. So that'll be our first foray into the... The, the, the archives outside London, which were always supposed to be a, a major part of the project. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's great that this is what you've managed to achieve, even with the extremely limited access you've had. So, yeah, I can imagine it will make an incredible difference being actually able to, to freely access things again. Brilliant. And then I'm going to ask a final question, which is the question with which almost all a bit lit videos end um, for anyone. Again, anyone who wants to to pick up. And that is what is literature? I'll give it a go <laughs> and then people can chuck rocks at me if you, if you think it's a terrible, terrible answer. Um, I think I think literature and um, and all the things that surround literature are, are records of ourselves and they are ways for us to understand ourselves through the past and through the words of others. And that kind of the leap of empathy that that requires, I think, is hugely, hugely important. Um, I think as well that certainly for this for this project, I think of literature as as a way of uh, encountering other people, um, which has been kind of hugely important when we haven't been able to encounter other people for very, very good reasons. Um, it's a way of training ourselves to think. It's a way of training ourselves to counter false information and to look for what is accurate and what's reliable. Um, it's a way of thinking through our own condition and refusing narratives from other people that are unacceptable. 
frankly. So I suppose I think it's everything <laughs> and hugely important and not something to squander, but something to cherish. Could, could I add a little bit? To yes, that? of course. I've been thinking about, I, I think this is because I've been thinking through the lens of the the recusants and the the people, the royalists and the people who are in hiding and thinking about the plague and that of our own times. Um, and I, I think it's also something, like it's a window into how we can build a better community by sort of showing us who's been who's been given a voice in communities and who has been left out and how do we how do we build our communities together and so I think for me engendering this stage is really special because it's asking these questions about how do we how do we build a new story how do we build a new story that is inclusive of um of everyone in a community like how are we building a better community um yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Erin. So I think, yeah, what Claire was saying about encountering other people and what Erin's saying about building a community through that is such a beautiful way of, of expressing what it means to create a more accurate and therefore inclusive theatre history that, that shows all the things that have been previously overlooked. Um, and for anyone who's enjoyed watching this video and hearing about the Engendering the Stage project so far, there will be future videos further exploring what the findings are as they're brought to life by the, by the project team. So brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us.